hopefully if I can if I can get one person or, or two people to just think about life slightly differently and be able to look the you know those who are close to the ledge or, or walking up to the edge um, and be able to just you know think about life slightly differently instead of being consumed um, with the current their present situation um, then then I you know then, then my job would be fulfilled and that um, I can help someone someone else you're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we sat down with engineer, author, and former Vietnamese refugee, Young Duong, to talk about his new book, Shifting Optics. Shifting Optics shares stories from Young's own life to inspire readers to shift their perspective on the world and on their own lives. Your host for this week is me, Aiden Thomason. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Young. Today I'm sitting down with Young Duong, author of the new book, Shifting Optics. Young came to the U.S. as a Vietnamese refugee as a child, and he is now an accomplished optics engineer and entrepreneur. His book shares memories from his life with the hope of inspiring readers to look outward and make the world a better place. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for um, sitting down with us. To get started, can you kind of um, set the stage a little bit about your life? However however in-depth you want to go, but just kind of explain like your your story of coming from Vietnam to the U.S. I got you. So I'll give you the, uh, thank you for having me first. Oh, uh, yeah. The, a, a, a quick sort of a, a rundown and we can go into depth um, as much as you want. Uh, so born in Vietnam, uh, boat person. Uh, we actually uh, left Vietnam twice. Uh, first time we got landed back in Vietnam, did, did the uh, go to jail slash uh, get out of jail and left again. Uh, Landed in Thailand, homeless, went from refugee camp to refugee camp before actually getting to the U.S. Uh, grew up in uh, poverty, uh, somewhat in Northern Virginia. Uh, then we uh, went to college in Indiana, uh, came down to Austin uh, to for three months. I was going to go off to get my Ph.D., but decided that Austin was too much fun. Uh, having spent uh, four years in college, wanted to live life a little bit. Uh, stayed with a startup here and then slowly made my way um, up the social economic ladder. Started a company back in 2005, raised, you know, uh, 50 some odd million. Uh, and then I think the company raised a total of 80 some odd million. Um, then started another company and eventually that got liquidated. And we now have some funds to uh, invest in hopefully impactful causes that help the world in some ways. So that's, that's my life in a nutshell. So going to kind of, um, I want to kind of talk through, well, your life is in the book, obviously, um, but I want to kind of talk through a little bit of your life and then also about your book. So I'm going to start on life details first, and then we'll move into some thoughts I had about the book, if that's good with you. Absolutely. So I know you were very young, and I know, um, having read your book, your experience as a refugee is kind of um, a framework for the book, even though it's not really just about that part of your life, obviously. But I know you were super young as a child. So what was that experience like for you? Do you remember it mostly? Like, is it mostly parents' memories? So, so I think it's a little bit of both. I, I definitely have images um, of the first trip. Um, the thing that, that always uh, scared me as a child and, and uh, was in a lot of my dreams was unfortunately the person who, who was seasick. I remember uh, having nightmares um, 
growing up with with a person with a green face. And unfortunately, that's the person that uh, on the first trip was so seasick that he was just rolled up in a ball in a fetal position on the boat and um, eventually died. Um, so, uh, you know, that, so I, I definitely have images. I have, uh, you know, there, there's memories of, of breaking my head, of, of, uh, of being homeless, of being, uh, you know, somewhat attacked when we landed in Thailand the second trip and having kids, uh, you know, kick and punch me, trying to grab my last pair of pajama pants. Um, so I would say some of the more traumatic sort of experiences of the trip. Uh, I have images, um, and, and I remember somewhat. But in general, I would say day-to-day life, um, I don't remember much of it. I don't remember much of, of uh, really the thought process that went through day-to-day life. I can't tell you whether I was uh, frightened to death or scared to death in those moments. I just remember having those moments. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. How old were you when you left Vietnam the first time and then when you actually made it out? So the first time was uh, between four and five. We didn't get to the U.S. till 82, which was mean I was around six and a half, seven-ish. Um, and my mom had to spend a year, we spent a year in Galang uh, because she had TB and uh, obviously the U.S. wouldn't allow people with TB in the country until they'd gotten their viral load down to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, going from refugee camps. So yeah, so four to six, uh, almost seven is, is a time frame of uh, when we left the first time, uh, what was in prison. Later back in Vietnam, in prison, and then when we left the second time. So I want to kind of, because I know most of your childhood was in the U.S., so I want to switch over to that part of your life. So what, um, sure. I guess, like, what was the resettlement experience like for you? What was your childhood like more generally? So, so childhood, certainly we didn't have, um, you know, very much. Uh, parents worked uh, night and day. I barely saw my parents. I, I definitely barely saw my mom even um, getting into my teenage years, because she worked all the time. Um, my dad eventually settled into more of a, uh, a nine to five, which is like six to three. Um, but uh, yeah, grow, growing up, uh, those first few years were pretty, uh, I guess, I guess, I wouldn't say eventful in a, in a good way. Certainly there was a lot of uh, turbulence and, and trauma uh, those first few years with just trying to make Ends meet like we didn't eat our first ham- McDonald's hamburger till six months after we got to uh, the U.S. Um, and and growing up, it was you know uh, yeah you know talking uh, cockroach infested homes you know never knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Uh, but it was interesting in that during those times, um, you know we lived close to my elementary school, and and I, I excel. Um, I, I became fairly popular. I was uh, um, I was part of something called the uh, popcorn committee, so I, I got to know the gym teacher, Mr. Michael, very well. And I would literally, uh, you know, get out of my class, get a pass to go to the gym uh, early every Friday, and go make popcorn and sell popcorn to for gym equipment for the uh, for Mr. Michael. Um, fourth grade, I had. Um, I excelled so much. I was taking fifth grade math. Uh, I, you know, my uh, homeroom teacher had a, a points program that 
I accumulated so many extra credit points and points that literally I, I took half a day off um, for the second half of the year. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a fun time. Uh, I would say at school, uh, home life is a little bit more difficult, but yeah, we, we, we worked through, I was, you know, um, even then I was helping my parents all the way up to my teenage years with uh, co-leading mail, uh, to make, uh, make additional income. My mom would, would, uh, get uh, side business, side jobs from her normal, uh, mail business and, or working for someone and, and they would have overflow projects and we would work on them. Yeah. And that, so I got pretty good at coding mail. I got pretty good at stamping mail. I think at one point I was, uh, I could stamp a thousand envelopes in 15 minutes. Oh, wow. And then, uh, then I had the, uh, was it, uh, it was two sheets of paper and a VRE business reply, uh, mail. And I could take two pieces of paper, fold them, grab the, uh, VRE, stuff the envelope. I could do 500 of those in, I think, an hour and a half. Uh, my mom was able to get down to, I think, less than an hour. So, yeah, there, were, there, there was those, those cool sort of, well, I wouldn't say cool, but certainly moments where, where you did what you had to do to survive and, and, and you progress and you move forward as a family. So I'm, I'm drawing from, from your book, but trying not to, to spoil it so that, that people will go and read after. Um, but one thing that stuck out to me, I guess, when you were talking about your childhood in your book is the different, the different experiences that you had being a young child when you came to the U.S. versus like what your parents and other older family members went through. Could you kind of talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. So one of the things that uh, came naturally or easily for me was the language. Uh, most of my friends would say I can't speak English now, but that's a much different story. I got out of ESL in a year. Um, my uh, sister uh, took her three years to get through. I just uh, acclimated to the, the culture uh, much faster uh, than my sister and definitely my parents. So one of the things, the common theme that I see with, with immigrants or refugees in the U.S. is that the older you are, it's much more difficult to acclimate to the, uh, just the culture and the environment. Um, picking up the language is definitely harder when you're older. And just, just adapting to um, just the differences, all the differences that uh, from, from one culture to the next uh, can be difficult. And all that really stems from being able to pick up the language. And certainly when you're uh, my wife uh, didn't come to the U.S. until she, uh, she was 19. So her language skills are, are even worse than mine. So you know, even now, she has difficulty picking up. You know, she, she's, she's fine now. She works. She's doing great. Um, but you know, like just nuances of the culture, uh, it's still somewhat foreign to her. Right? Like going to a, a, a comedy show uh, where... Um, is difficult, right? She, she can't pick up on a lot of the nuances. So, so yeah, I think in general, uh, coming to the U.S. or coming to a different country uh, at a younger age is a lot easier um, than someone going to a country at a, at a more advanced age. Yeah, I've, um, I've heard that a lot from, from students. I've tutored um, refugee students before, and I've tutored uh, – high school student that was resettled and then a couple of like kindergartners and preschoolers like around that age and I've um so that's something that I've I've heard a lot about about like how how difficult and different that experience is based on age um, and just to 
another common one is just eating food. The U.S. you know the diet, the U.S. diet is different than, than other countries. But you know, I I would you know I, I can almost eat anything here in the U.S. now. But you know, certainly my parents that you know they can't just just uh, enjoy the the uh, foods here as much as I can. Oh, interesting. I guess I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, our food is can be really rich a lot of times, <laughs> to to say the least. So I was really interested, I guess, as a student in my experience um, in high school and college. Could you speak to, I guess, kind of what that was like? I think you talked a lot in the book about, especially a lot about like identity and how you're kind of yourself and your life kind of impacted your experiences in school in the older years. Could you kind of speak to that? Yeah. So, so high school was, was, uh, was, I would say more difficult for me, even though, you know, we, we were, you know, slowly climbing the socioeconomic ladder, but yeah, high school was, was different in that I was no longer a top dog of everything. Right. So back in, in elementary school, I was, I was uh, fairly gifted as far as uh, education and I could still hang with a lot of the kids as far as in sports. Um, and obviously by the time high school uh, came, um, you know, hormonal changes, uh, just no longer being, the, you know, I went to Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Tech, so there were a lot of very smart people there. So certainly I was no longer, uh, I never, uh, no longer stood out uh, as being one of the top students. And and just socially, it was difficult. We, we had, uh, even though we were better than when I was in elementary school, we had, we, we had nothing really uh, from, uh, from that standpoint. You know, a lot, a lot of the kids had, you know, cars and, and, and just, just a lot more wealth, right? They can stay at school. They can do a lot more things. Whereas uh, I couldn't, you know, there was no outlet for or other activities than go to school and then go home just because we couldn't afford it. And I had, didn't have the, even the transportation to do that. So, so high school was probably a little bit more difficult for me. Um, and, and certainly uh, being different, being uh, an immigrant, uh, you know, it, you know, I think there, there's always a sense of, of being, uh, I wouldn't say an outcast, but certainly from the outside looking in rather than from the, uh, the inner circle. Um, back in elementary and, and um, intermediate school, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood. So the, um, I guess the demographics were more suited to people who are like me. Whereas in high school, um, certainly, because it was a science and tech and more gifted school, uh, the demographics were a lot different. You know, all the kids were a lot more affluent. They were, uh, yeah, the demographics was much different. So I think high school was, was a struggle. Uh, and obviously at the time I, I had struggled with my parents too, having to rebel, you know, having a little bit rebellious mentality that was built in me from, uh, from, uh, English culture or American culture. So I went off to Rose Holman, which is, uh, 11 hours drive away from, from my house. Um, and that I was, I think the only Asian or one of the very few Asian in my class. Um, everyone else was, uh, was Caucasian. Uh, I think it was 96% or something like that. Okay. Um, but in that scenario, I actually fit in very, very well. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I probably spent most of my time in, activities other than, than uh, schooling at the time. I was in all the clubs, I was in a lot of the clubs. I helped write the constitution of the Aero Vice Club. I was part of the student activities board. Um, I played almost all the intramural sports. 
uh, I was around, I, I was, you know, you know, became a lot more, uh, more active uh, in college life. Um, they say that uh, one of the old adage that how you are in college is how you live your life as, as a grown up. And I think I, I sort of did that. I, I was very much very active, very tried to help people around me as much as possible. Um, and as, while still excelling at my, uh, at my academics. I had plan I had um, thought of this question when I was reading and I had planned it for a little later, but I think I'm going to go ahead and ask it. But I kind of noticed um, as you were talking about, your career path um, during it, and especially, I think some of your earlier steps, you had kind of like a really, I think nonchalant is the right word, but um, kind of relaxed, like, oh, everything that was meant to happen happened, um, kind of about some of mm -hmm. your career setbacks or like paths that went differently than you expected, which I think mm -hmm. as a college student is super important to hear, because um, I think we, I mean, I'm sure you remember this from college, but like everything is focusing on creating that like five, 10 year plan after. Um, so kind of what would you say to, to young people? What advice would you give them from having more of that kind of relaxed attitude towards setback? So I, I think, I think that's, that's, a, that's a great question. One, and one, one that uh, hopefully my book sort of addressed because I want my kids to sort of um, have the same sort of perspective in life. Right? So you can, you know, you're, obviously in college, there, there are many different types of college students. Um, you know, you definitely have the people who study, uh, try to get the highest grades, uh, you know, spend hours upon hours uh, really trying to, to make sure that they're academically okay. Um, you have others who don't care about academics as much, um, and you have uh, the in-betweeners. Um, so to me, I, th I think it's, it's all about keeping perspective in life, um, you know, you know, everything in, in, uh, uh, you don't want to be, um, you know, you don't want to push yourself so hard that you're now, uh, everything in life hinges around whether you succeed or not in that one thing. Um, you don't want to be stuck in, in, uh, not caring or, or just, you know, if you have one setback, you're, you're, you, you, you suddenly now it's going, you know, just give up. But, so one of the things that's, that's, uh, that's helped me always is keep really keep everything in perspective. Right? Life is not um, always bad or always good. I try not to let emotion and, and, and what happens day to day sort of affect me. And I think that came off as being somewhat nonchalant. And I, I hopefully it didn't come up as arrogant. I do believe in my, uh, my abilities and my, my talent, but I certainly uh, not to the extent where I'm arrogant about it. Uh, or hopefully I didn't, I didn't cross that line to arrogance. Um, but in, in life, I think, you know, there, things will, no one's perfect. So first off, no one's perfect. Um, life will not be perfect. The road to success will not be perfect. The road to, um, you know, finding happiness will not be perfect. And at every step of the way, I think it's very important to keep, keep a, keep a perspective of life, right? You know, it's not everything that happens, um, at any juncture isn't all bad, you know, uh, you know, take a step back and look at how that situation affects you, obviously, but look at how other people might perceive that, uh, that situation, how others may say, or may look at that situation and, and, and really be able to, to, uh, to learn from it. Um, you know, I always want my kids to be independent. 
always be, you know, be able to do anything by themselves and be able to grow by themselves and be able to succeed or fail by themselves, right? But any step away, they have to keep a perspective so that they don't continually beat themselves up if, if things don't go well and don't get overly, uh, you know, don't pat themselves in too much on the back if something uh, um, is successful, right? Um, I think keeping a, a nice sort of calm attitude to everything is, is the path to success and keeping a perspective on any situation uh, will help you conquer or, or move past uh, those difficult times. So were you um, in the moment, like when these things were happening, were you pretty good at keeping things in perspective or is this kind of something you've learned as you've gotten older, like with the benefit of hindsight? I think I, I would say uh, the, the good or bad about this is I learned this fairly early on. Uh, but that's just because of, of all the stuff I've gone through. And so I would say in the moment, it was definitely hindsight way back when, but I sort of gotten that probably through my, uh, my early teens and, and during high school was being able to keep everything sort of, sort of in front of me. I think uh, even during high school, I would be too uh, focused on, on winning. Food focus on on you know getting that A, getting that you know that uh, that girl to like me, getting that um, being the uh, the top dog of whatever uh, situation I was in. Uh, but somewhere in there, I sort of learned that I can't and I won't <laughs> for every situation, and that um, having to to sort of really understand that there there's a lot more to life, right? You know. I know the cliche about the journey is more important than the outcome uh, or where you're going, but, uh, but it's true. Um, and sometimes keeping a perspective on that is, is important. Just a quick question. Was this your first, this is your first book that you've written, right? Uh, yes. Written? Okay. So was that, um, I know you've been like talking about keeping things in perspective where you, did you decide to write this book because you wanted to share that? Or are you kind of thinking of writing more in the future or, so I, I think this may be my only book, but we'll see. Gotcha. Uh, the, the, the original intent of the book was to leave something for my children. Mm -hmm. So my eldest is turning 11 in uh, less than 20 days, 20 some odd days here, 26 days. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we don't, I don't talk much about my history or, or uh, yeah, I, I sh sort of shield them a lot from this stuff. Um, but I still wanted to document it and leave them something that uh, they ever want to get back to it, they, get, they can. The point of the book was for me to essentially be there for my kids without being there for my kids. That makes any sense. I, I sort of know that my, you know, like, like me and my parents, I don't go, for the, go to them for advice anymore. I don't sort of, uh, you know, I, I haven't gone to them for advice uh, probably since uh, high school days. Uh, I sort of know that uh, how kids are, um, and throughout the book, I was hoping to leave uh, through my stories, leave uh, little nuggets of, of wisdom that they can take and hopefully use in their own lives. And for me, it's important for them to be able to take the book and, uh, you know, if they come in across some sort of problem, and since they won't pick up the phone to call dad because that's not what teenagers or kids in their 20s do. They may be able to pick up the book and read some passage that 
probably may not be germane to what uh, they're going through, but maybe offer them insight into keeping a, a different or looking at the problem with a different perspective or seeing what dad's gone through or what other people have gone through and hopefully helping them in their own uh, and find that their own solution to their problem. Uh, so the general goal would be for them to to have something that they can probably hopefully glean a little bit of wisdom from as they go through life. Yeah, I thought um, I was really touched by reading um, your dedication in the intro at the beginning. Um, that that was it was it was really um, well articulated and sweet to kind of want like that idea of um, wanting to leave something for your kids. And I think. Um, I think all young people reading it even, um, I know it's like specifically for your children cause that's your life and like experience, but I think all young people can get a lot of wisdom from that too. And, and that's, uh, that's essentially, you know, when I first, like really when I first started, it was really just, you know, uh, I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to publish it, uh, to, to the masses or, or have podcasts. And, um, uh, but during the, when I was writing it, um, Unfortunately, a couple of tragic events happened in my life. Um, one was my uh, my largest investment. Um, his son um, committed suicide. Um, and then two weeks after that, another friend of mine, his 20-some-odd-year-old, uh, also committed suicide. And that really sort of put, you know, gave me, gave me perspective and that I want to share this with more people and hopefully help um, kids other than my own to be able to just look at a situation slightly differently. Um, mm -hmm. I would say I have uh, illusions of grandeur where I can probably pull people away from the, uh, the ledge, but hopefully if I can, if I can get one person or, or two people to just think about life slightly differently, and be able to look the you know those who are close to the ledge or, or walking up to the edge, um, and be able to just you know think about life slightly differently instead of being consumed uh, with the current their present situation. Um, then then I you know then then my job would be uh, fulfilled and that uh, I can help someone someone else. Yeah, that's really timely. It's a definitely it's a huge. Um, issue for young people and I, I see it rising every day unfortunately and it's really tragic and I think especially the the timing with the pandemic is fitting too because that's definitely exacerbated um, the mental health crisis among among young people yeah, yeah, I didn't realize how, how big of an issue it was so, so I started you know after the two uh, events I started looking into it it's it's it's, it's a lot more prevalent than than, um, than I, 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 I certainly thought I didn't think it was you know, I, th I thought that um, you asked with everyone having everything uh, that this wasn't a problem, but it, you know, mental health is certainly a much larger problem than, than, than I would ever have thought. It was a huge problem I noticed in my high school, but I think I, even just as I've gotten older, like kind of realizing that it wasn't just that it was my school, that it's like every, it's all over. And like, like you said, like you would think that um, it wouldn't be an issue, like, with, with how many resources we have access to, but it, it's still just becoming even more prevalent. It's, yeah, it's, it's really tough. It's one of those things where um, uh, my wife started, you know, started a, a nonprofit 
called Perspective Charity. And one of the things, I think I, I mentioned that before, but one of the things we wanted to do was connect children um, in the U.S. to sort of children in, in third world countries. Um, and the reason for that is obviously the children in third world countries would get a scholarship and they would get their education paid for. But that interaction is important because I want, we wanted to give children in affluent countries. And, and you know, we're, we're starting out in the U.S., but certainly it's going to grow, hopefully globally. Because uh, I, I always tell everybody, if it doesn't scale, it doesn't matter. Uh, an organization has to scale to make an impact. Um, so th the hope is that the children in more affluent uh, nations can sort of see and live and see through the eyes and understand how children in a third world country lives and hopefully gain greater appreciation for what they have over here. Um, I worry about the mental fortitude of kids these days, especially my own, um, and hopefully being able to see um, how others live, how others survive, will give them um, uh, insight into their own lives, and hopefully they can cherish and appreciate what they have, and hopefully they can actually cherish and appreciate what they have and use it to better the world. So I'm trying to think of, um, I did want to touch on that. So I'm glad that you brought it up. I'm trying to think of like how to ask a question about it. Um, but what would you suggest to kids? How would you suggest that they start like opening perspective or is it just taking those moments to interact with people that are from other circumstances or do you have any like suggestions? So I think, I think, uh, you know, certainly I, I could pitch perspective churn uh, and that's, that's my, my wife's organization. But I think, in general, one of the things that uh, that I learned that that you know that really helped me uh, not to think about uh, my own problems when 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 the problem seems uh, all-consuming is to go out and volunteer, to go out and do something that isn't part of your daily life. Uh, you, know, to, you know, I think uh, we've given food to uh, to the homeless people. We've uh, you know, I, I've worked in a community where we hosted events for the community. Um, just doing something that's that's outside of your normal routine and doing something that benefits someone else, making an impact in someone else's life. Um, I think will give you perspective on your own. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of need out there. Uh, there's a lot of of, uh, of people in situations that are probably worse than your current situation. Um, and it's nice to have that perspective to see, uh, you know, how big are your problems in, in light of everything else that's going on. And I think volunteering is a, is a great way to help um, and give back and to take from because there's the feeling of helping some, someone else out is, is, is tremendous, especially if that if you, you see it having a positive impact on someone else, it's, it's, um, it's a very good feeling. And, and I encourage everyone to, to go uh, try to experience it. I know this is kind of shifting gears a little bit, but I think it's, it's tied with what you just said. I was kind of noticing like that there's two parallel meanings of optics, um, which is obviously the title of your book, Shifting mm -hmm. Optics. So can you explain what both of your meanings are for that word? Yeah, so, so there's only uh, a few uh, universities in the, in the U.S. that offers an optics program. Um, I was lucky enough to go to Rose, which uh, had an applied optics program. 
And even at Rose, uh, one of the questions is, so what are you going to do with an optics degree when, when you get out? And, uh, and the, the, the old, you know, all of my friends would always make fun of the, would you like fries with that sort of degree? Uh, so, I, so I added the mechanical engineering on top of that just to ensure that I could have, uh, you know, have something else to fall back on if I couldn't find uh, employment as an optical engineer. But for me, optics has been, been great. So optical engineering is, is uh, a growing field. It's certainly something that um, uh, is utilized everywhere. One of the hottest fields in optics right now is uh, augmented reality. Uh, you know, your Oculus Rift sort of uh, uh, the commercials right now is big. So certainly, you know, optics from an engineering standpoint, from, uh, you know, doing things like uh, laser cooling or, um, you know, just uh, 3D and, and augmented reality. So that's one side of it. But the, the optics that um, I was thinking about as well when writing the book, is just being able to look at through someone else's eyes, getting a different perspective on life. Um, so that was that double meaning in, in the title. It's trying to say, hey, there's a, there's a technical meaning for it, but there's also really looking at life um, slightly differently. Um, looking at life through not only your eyes, but someone else's eyes, and hopefully uh, seeing the world uh, just completely differently. So another thing that I picked I up on in your... Oh, sorry. Oh, I just said I probably went way too much detail into the, uh, the technical aspect. So, so sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no, it's, I think it's interesting. I just don't know anything, don't know anything about science or engineering. So I'm always really interested to learn about this kind of stuff. So another thing that I really kind of noticed in your book is you are very self-reliant um, and very focused on inner strength and int intrinsic motivation. Um, but you also are focused really on relationships. I noticed a lot of your your job decisions would be based on like character judgments or relationship judgments. Um, so can you comment, I guess, on how those things kind of coexist for you? Yeah. So, so I think um, one of the things that I grow, growing up with, with, with nothing, uh, you sort of, um, you know, put this barrier around or the shield around yourselves. And one of the things that, that I learned or, or sort of uh, developed is this, this, this inner strength to do everything by myself and not try to rely on others. There, there's a, there's certainly a, there's particularly good and bad with that. Um, in that everything I do sort of tries to revolve around how I can do it by myself, how I can uh, move things forward, uh, both from, from a, uh, from a physical aspect, doing things, you know, literally doing things by myself and from a mental aspect of making sure everything is, is you know emotionally tied to what I do and not what everyone else does, um, and and in a lot of ways that can certainly be lonely. <laughs> and certainly in in uh, in a lot of ways that can be um, defeating. But certainly it's worked for me. Um, certainly the person I rely most on is myself. Um, I don't see that changing. But in life, I think uh, unfortunately you can't do everything by yourself, and you have to. Uh, really uh, rely on others as well and and certainly developing relationships to make sure that uh, I find those who are very much independent like myself so when I ask or, or get them to do something that I can pretty much you know not be in their um, you know 
constantly monitoring them or, or, or looking over their shoulders to ensure that it gets done. And that, that, that's important to me, that people are self-motivated, self-reliant, independent, and, 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 um, and doesn't need sort of constant guidance. And that's what I'd look for in people through my investments as well as uh, just personal relationships. Um, to me, it's, it's uh, people who, who can and are intrinsically motivated um, will perform better than those who continue to uh, guidance or uh, be told what to do. So it's just something that uh, was forced on me when I was young and certainly a characteristic that I look on when, when I'm older. Does that pretty much answer it? Or? I guess I was really um, struck mostly by how often when you were making, I saw the threads of independence, but and it was just interesting how you were kind of saying, I chose this job over this one because I had this opinion of this person versus the other. It, it makes sense with talking to you. You're talking about how it's important to kind of put your situation in perspective with others being, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, you know, you never, it's very hard to know whether you made the right decision when it comes to choosing path A versus path B. Um, and I, I tried to make those decisions based on the best information I have at the time, right? And I always, I think even in the book, I talked about no regrets, and that you can only make the decision as best you can at the time. And that, that's also very much so with relationships. And you, you, know, you go through life trying to find cues on what is the best thing to do. And, and that, those are the situations where come up and if a certain relationship or someone uh, does something that's just slightly um, different than you expect, then I probably tend to move away from that and try to make decisions all else being equal uh, with things that I know, with relationships that I know, or with people that, that have helped me in the past. I think that's that's actually not uncommon. I think um, a lot of venture capitalist funding, a lot of um, how people make decisions are all pattern recognition. You know, they've experienced a certain set of circumstances that led to a positive outcome, and they look for those patterns in in their investment. And I think I do that as well. I just do that uh, probably on a slightly on a more critical basis. And I really try to find people with. Uh, that are, are similar to me, because that's, I guess, ultimately, that's, that's all I know. Um, so looping back around to the future, so I read your book, and hopefully our listeners will also read it, but what's on the horizon for you in the future? Because you've um, outlined a lot of your path up to now in your book. So I, I'm always, you know, I've always been passionate about helping, helping the world, right? making an impact. Um, I have, I think, close to 40 patents at this point. Um, I've created jobs, I've uh, started a company, uh, liquidated a company, I've started multiple companies, liquidated companies. Um, so I think I, I've made a little bit of an impact in the world, but certainly continuing to make impact in the world. And one of the, one of the impacts that's, uh, to me, pretty near and dear to my heart is something called Farm2050. And there's a website out there called farm2050.com. And what it's saying is that population growth is going, is, you know, population is growing, and the amount of arable land is decreasing. So at some point, those two curves will cross, meaning that there won't be enough arable land to feed the, the population. 
And obviously the website predicts 2050 is when those two points cross. Uh, I certainly don't believe it's 2050. I think the, the time frame is much uh, further out than that. But even now, when there's more arable land than, than uh, population, so there's, uh, you know, we grow a lot more food than is necessary. There's still, you know, I think it was the last statistics I saw was like 700 million people still go through a day without knowing where their next meal is coming from. Um, so there's still a lot of hungry people in the world. So you can imagine what happens when those, those two curves um, get closer and closer to each other. So um, obviously having been hungry, having been homeless, having been gone through life without, you know, the seven days without food, um, I sort of want to help solve that problem. And the company uh, I liquidated certainly was a path towards that. Uh, but I think there's going to still need more to be done to really innovate and, and move uh, farming and agriculture to a position where those two curves never sort of meet. The, the world will always be able to produce more food than, uh, than uh, the necessary. Um, so I think if my next, you know, my next venture, when or whatever that is, we'll probably still focus on that. I'm, uh, I'm still dabbling in, 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 uh, in other fields as well. Uh, I think AR and VR is pretty big. I'm helping one of my uh, alma mater, I think, uh, look into that, uh, some of that technology. Uh, but yeah, uh, as much as it can help and, and advance uh, the world somehow, I will continue to try to do that. And maybe get back in the game of trying to do something for uh, for Farm Twenty Fifty. That's definitely um, something that's really, obviously, very very um, impending. I think it's kind of been brought to the forefront of our minds this year with the pandemic. Even though I know that um, the hunger crisis now is more about distribution than arable land this year specifically, but um, just the number of of people that are going hungry because of the pandemic this year that's an especially important important well, thing a, to be on our minds this year. That's, a, that's actually an interesting other issue because of uh, how efficient the food uh, situation has become. And there's a, a company out there called Plenty. Uh, Nate Story is one of the founders. Um, and his thing is growing food indoors. Right? So that's uh, you know, the classic vertical farming, uh, which I fully support, by the way. But his other big thing is really uh, decentralized sort of farming. Um, so putting, you know, there's other vertical farms where you put vertical farms near metropolitan and provide fresh food to various metropolitans or around the, yeah, the vertical farm. There's actually even more talk of uh, something called micro farms, uh, where literally you have truly distributed farming, where now instead of having really large corporations ship all your broccoli to uh, uh, Chicago before it gets distributed to the rest of the country, or shipping all the cattle to Chicago to uh, before shipping to the rest of the country. Um, you have very local farms that provide food only to the area. Uh, unfortunately, that model means more expensive food, but it also means you know, the hunger crisis sort of, um, I think back when COVID first happened, they had to call uh, a bunch of cattle and a bunch of uh, pigs because um, of the food plant, the food processing plant being shut down. It was more expensive to try to ship the animals back to their ranch than to just, you know, essentially kill them. Uh, so that, that sort of thing 
if you have a decentralized sort of farming system that could help. So that was actually all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that's on your mind or anything that you'd like to say um, before we kind of wrap up? I think it was a, a great interview. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad I, I was able to talk to various things uh, within my book and, and outside of my book. Uh, and I just want to thank your audience for this. That was author Yang Duong talking to us about his life and his new book, Shifting Optics. His book can be purchased on Amazon or at most major booksellers. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Refuge Podcast for all the updates on our show. As always, thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.